And you're like, where? <laughs> where would we turn in our Bibles? <laughs> okay, that's Exodus 20 today. If you want to look at Exodus 20 just as we get started. Out of curiosity, um, just to kind of stimulate your interest and help you fix it in your memory. Anybody know what you find in Exodus 20? Remember this, 20. 20 is 10 times 2. And that's where you have the 10 commandments. There's 10 and 20. So Exodus 20 is kind of your go-to place. You know, if you're talking to somebody and they want to bring up, you know, apologetic issues, uh, you know, how do you know there's a God or whatever. And you want to, for example, hit him with the good old C.S. Lewis moral argument that he develops in the first chapter of Mere Christianity. The moral argument that everybody wants rectitude or the right thing to be done as depends on, as, as, as affects them. And um, boy, there's a great word for that argument in Exodus 20. See, for example, nobody wants to be murdered, right? And the Bible says here in Exodus 20, thou shalt not murder. And you might say, well, no, no, it says thou shalt not kill. Yeah, it's not talking about military or governmental execution. It's talking about murder, uh, an illicit killing of another person uh, that we in our culture have correctly identified as not a righteous killing, but an unrighteous killing, murder. And so in Exodus 20, I want you to notice that when you have these commands from God, they're all addressing a specific capacity in the hearers. And this is the law. This is such an important thing to catch that you have instructions that can be obeyed, not by groups primarily, but by individuals. They're not group sins. They're individual sins if you transgress. But the group is composed of the individuals, and whether they abide by these or not depends on how it goes with national Israel. That was the deal with the, um, the conditional covenant or the bilateral covenant of the Mosaic Law. The nation, this is their constitution in 10 words, the Ten Commandments, the nation would either obey or disobey based on the individuals in the nation obeying or disobeying. That's, that's the way it works. Let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> he says in verse... One, then the Lord God spoke all these things, these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Who did he bring out? The nation. He's talking to everyone, right? But then he says, you, everybody, you, the nation, shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. So what if I obey that, but then everyone around me doesn't obey that? You see how you get instantly the move from the individual to the group by the individual choices of the group. So I think about this, just do a little thought experiment with me, a little theological reasoning here. Well, this is what happened. The people had other gods instead of the creator. They worshiped other gods and God eventually kicked them out of the land for it and idolatry. How did that arise? How did you have in thousands to millions of hearts individual disobedience of this command that an individual alone can do. You, you can't have a collective, right, worship of God. You have to have individual worship of God that is in manifested in the group because I can't choose for you to love God. I can't choose for you to serve God. I can't choose for you to say God and not Molech. God and not the idol. See what I mean? It's an individual choice, but it has collective effects. How did the nation end up going this way? How did they end up rejecting Christ? How did they end up nailing him to a cross and saying in the crowds and in the street, uh, while Jesus is being crucified, let his blood be on our heads and those of our children? How do you have this collective effect 
Because here you have God's revelation where he's telling them, and they're hearing, by the way, in Exodus 20, from the mountain, from Mount Sinai, the nation is hearing the thundering voice of God say these words from the fire. They're hearing God say these words. You, I'm talking to you, have no other gods before me. It's very personal. So they have that sort of influence from the creator where he says this is what he wants. It's called special revelation. And individuals have to respond with their individual volition or capacity to choose. So how did you end up with idolatry? How do you end up with this rebellion against God? Well, somebody had a different answer and they influenced others. And that kind of got a little bit of a following. And then they had super, all the way throughout, they had supernatural help from God's enemy. And we don't know how he influences people, how he gets thoughts in our heads, how he's communicating. We know he does because he's deceived the nations. In some cases, we do have examples of demon possession and the person speaks what the demons want them to say. But that's a rare case actually in the Bible. What I'm saying is we don't know how he gets his influence out there, how the message gets, uh, the, the doctrines of demons get parlayed. But we know they are, and we know that the whole world is under this cloud of deception. So how did the nation go into idolatry when they're given this clear instruction, which is a direct attack or a direct invitation to our volition to disregard other gods and only worship God? In every case, as you go through the Ten Commandments, they're individual choices that individuals have to make. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is heaven in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who have loved me, who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Notice, not leave him unpunished. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Who has to keep the Sabbath? The individual. If I'm keeping Sabbath in Israel under the Mosaic commandments and uh, under that administration, understand what I'm saying. If I'm keeping Sabbath and you're not, I'm not responsible for your failure to keep Sabbath. I'm responsible for my 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 deal with God. And that, that's how all of these work. If you murder someone, I didn't do it, you did it. Ten commandments. If you commit adultery, that's you, that's not me. That's, now, adultery is interesting because it's two people together in the same sin, equally guilty if it's adultery. Honor your father and mother. Who has to do that? The child has to do that individually. And, who, and how long do you have to honor your parents while you're in their household? Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Or is it a lifelong honoring? After they're gone, we still honor our father and mother. Absolutely. Don't murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal to not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's so beautiful. The way God addresses the collection of people, the group, as he tells individuals, what is your job? And this is true, a, a pattern I see in all the institutions. So let's review a little bit about divine institutions. First, volition, the power to choose, the capacity of making decisions. Called colloquially free will at times, which introduces a lot of questions that determinists ask that are hard to answer. Determinists have a lot of things that I can ask questions they can't answer. And the, the truth is that as far as we understand within this frame of our experience, we are responsible to make our choices and therefore free. Responsible to make our choices. Volition, I'm calling the great delegation. God is sovereign. He's the ultimate decider. He has delegated the capacity of making decisions to us in a way that he hasn't given to other earthly creatures. 
The animals have something like our volition, but it's not the same. I like to use the illustration of the squirrel. The squirrel, as you drive, as you bear down upon him on this highway, this road here, this ox trail, it's now a 70 mile an hour road for, for some people. I mean, not me. The squirrel is executing an algorithm as he tries to dodge you. Now you're going in a straight line. The squirrel's not used to animals going in a straight line. He's not made for that. He's used to animals that dodge and weave and can, can like a fox that can get him by being very fast and cunning and agile. So you're just driving straight, and you didn't mean to kill the squirrel, probably. But the squirrel, in trying to, to do what he's programmed to do, he starts doing these little jukes and these little dodges. And I'm sure for a fox, that's great. But for your car, just, just move over. You're fine. Just get over, and you're fine. But no, the squirrel's executing algorithm. He's, he's just reacting to what he's programmed to do. Because he's not a human, he's, he's, made, he's made fearfully and wonderfully, I'm sure, as God's uh, creature, but he's not made in God's image. And this great delegation from God to man, this capacity to make choices, we're calling volition. And this is the first, we'll say, institution of God's delegated authority. The first thing that God has given as our um, uh, delegated authority. You make your choices and nobody can change that. In slavery... Paul addresses slaves and says, and the Mosaic law does too, this is what you're responsible to choose as a slave. You're like, well, I don't have any self-determination. I'm owned. No, there is always the choice for what you do within the frame in which you're constrained. We're all constrained. We're all under the law of gravity. We're all dealing with various constraints, but we have choices that are our responsible choices within that frame. And it's always true. And it's the problem with the human race and all government. It's the problem with all the, it's the source of all the problems is our capacity to choose because we fail. Volition makes possible two key things by way of review. We talked about this last time. Two key things you get out of volition. The first is a relationship with God. No choice, no Choosing to talk to him, no choosing to love him, no choosing to walk with him, no relationship. It doesn't work. You're not a robot. You're not remote controlled. You're a personal being, and God wants you to love him. In fact, he commands it. But notice how a command works. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart. God puts that out there. Now it's a responsibility for me. I have the volitional responsibility to choose to obey that command. And that's always true. Now, it's not my choice whether I'm right or wrong for loving God. That's, that's already decided. The choice is whether I'll be right or wrong, whether I'll do it. And it's always true. It's amazing how this works. So you can worship God. You can have a relationship with God. We'll call that rapport because we don't use big words, rapport, that interpersonal relationship that God made you for. You have to have volition to have it. And the challenge to you, if, you're, if, you're, if your cup is full now and you're like, that's a lot of stuff, I don't think I can process any more right now on sun, Sunday morning, let me just say this final thing for you as you check out and you sleep at Fort Preston. That rapport is the greatest thing in the world. It's what you're made for and you need to choose it. And you need to choose it every single day. I want a relationship with you. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. It's a choice. It's always a choice. For those of you who will continue to feed on uh, this thought process here, our relationship, the second part, our rulership of God's works under his authority is possible because we have volition. You can't rule unless you choose. Rulership is making decisions. Authority exercised is decisions made. That's how it works. 
That's the whole issue with authority. Authority doesn't mean that people are fanning you in the great sedan chair as someone puts bonbons gently on your tongue uh, you know, to make you comfortable and, and to, to, to have a pleasant life. That's not authority, okay? That is generally an abuse of authority in, in what I'm describing. Authority really means not the abuse of people. It means the exercise of the capacity to make decisions over that which has been entrusted to you. And everybody has it. I cannot lift up your right hand with your brain and your, and your nervous system and, and cause you with your right hand to do something. You have to do that. That's your authority. That's been delegated to you. Now, I can tell you from God's word what you're supposed to do with that right hand in terms of serving God, and that presents to you a clear choice, either yes or no, do what God said or not. But you are the authority of whether you'll do it. And that is a heavy burden. But God's good. He made you for it. It's actually the most wonderful thing in the world that you're free and you can bring an offering to him. You can worship him. You can serve him and you can do what you do and rule over what's been entrusted to you for his sake. Now see, if if we define government this way, that it's the capacity to decide over that which has been entrusted to you with the purpose of worshiping God in the decision. If you define government that way, you could say, well, that is not happening generally in civil government in any level. That's not how people are doing what they're doing generally. That's generally not what's being done. And we, when, you, when you say it that way, that's why the theory is that there's no there's no righteous government. And, and that's the skepticism of this study. We should be very skeptical of human government without this need for rapport with God as we make our decisions of rulership for him. The successful use of volition, let's say when you get it right, is always according to God's special revelation, what God has said. That's his word, like we had in Exodus 20 you're going to make the right choice because God told you what the right choice was. You know that, and then you choose to do that. Rule and rapport go hand in hand through God's revelation. So if you don't have revelation from God, you really aren't equipped to rule. You you don't know what decisions to make. Go back to the Garden of Eden. They were told what their mission was. They were told what the prohibition was. They knew from God's revelation, according to the, the little bit we have of the story in Genesis 2 and 3, they knew enough to be successful. And we don't know what else God said to them. It's just selective in what it says. But the, the picture is God gave them his word. They then had to make choices and they failed. And that's the problem of the human race. And I hope you can see that's a problem of government. The abuse of volition, successful volition is always according to Revelation. The abuse of volition, making wrong decisions comes about for at least two reasons we said. Remember the two reasons why people make bad decisions? If you need revelation from God to make good decisions, then the, the other side of the coin is that I don't have revelation from God. And why would I not? The first is, as we said, ignorance of God's revelation. I just don't know what he wants. And that is the project of, for example, the social gospel. If you go to church where we're just talking about doing good uh, for man and being a good person and, you know, basically a kindergarten teacher's speech with some stories, If that's all you get and it's not from God's revelation, then you don't have any clue about what the right decisions are to make. And that's why you could say, well, so-and-so is religious, but they make bad government decisions. 
They claim to be a religious person. They, they go to church, but they're evil in their government. How is that possible? Well, they're not deciding based on revelation because they're ignorant of it. And there's two kinds of ignorance, we said. In Proverbs, there's the willful ignorance of the serious fool, the hardened fool who has been told but won't receive it. But then there's the other thing that we all have. It's gullibility. We're all born with this um, petit is, is, the, is the Hebrew word. The petit doesn't know. The petit doesn't know because he hasn't been taught yet. You know, he's, he's, he's un, untrained yet sinful. And we're all that person. And you can read about him in Proverbs 6, the gullible, uh, the, the naive, it's, I think it says in the New American Standard. We all struggle with this. The arrogant man won't say he's naive. He'll say, oh, I know. How do you know? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm 15 years old. You don't know anything. I know what I know. You don't even know what you don't know. But, but that's how we all are. And that you got to grow out of that. That's called the attainment of wisdom. So two kinds of ignorance. There's the willful ignorance and then the, the thing we're kind of born with that you want to get out of as quickly as you can. Stay close to your elders. To benefit from multi-generational wisdom. Listen close and don't listen to your peers as we'll see in the story of Rehoboam if we get to it. The other thing in terms of the abuse of volition, making wrong decisions comes because you have the revelation but you don't believe it. I have God's word on whatever the topic is, but I don't believe it enough in this moment. And understand, faith isn't like a consistent, perfect, you know, I, I have faith and it's just, no, we, we, we wax, and wax and wane. We have strong points and weak points in our lives, in our day. Sometimes I'm strong in my faith, sometimes I'm not as strong. And that's, that's the nature of my attention to God's word and my time in prayer and the nature of being fallen and broken and needing the resurrection. But if I'm weak in my faith on what God has revealed, and I'm facing a strong temptation to go against what he's revealed, you can see why you would make a bad decision. And we see this in Solomon with his wives under influence. So the abuse of volition, so successful volition with the revelation, abuse of volition through the ignorance or rejection of God's revelation. Obviously, what's the, what's the, the common factor? The, the word of God. The word of God is for God's design, and we go back to Genesis 2 and 3, that's how you will rule what God has entrusted to you wisely. That's how self-government works. The derivative divine institutions of delegated authority, and we'll just call them divine institutions. They're derivative, all of them, of volition, of that initial capacity to make choices. I've been trying to show you that. God tells the nation you'll be successful and you'll enjoy time in the land if you won't worship other gods. Well, he's telling the nation that in Mount Sinai, but the individual has to choose that. Every household has to live that way. As for me and my house, Joshua says, we'll serve the Lord. And so the household is, you know, the householders setting the example, establishing the policy, seeking to train to fit within that policy. And then the individual children have to make their choice, right, moms and dads? And we're all dealing with that. But, but you see how that individual choice results in an aggregate that either worships God generally or doesn't. And that's what happened with the nation. So derivative from volition or divine institution one is marriage. In the time which the Bible was written, probably most marriages were not like today where we're selecting a mate and then choosing to marry them. But as we read as something as ancient as Samson and uh, Judges, was it Judges 10? Judges 13, sorry, Judges 13. Uh, it's got to be arranged with the parents back in the old days, but 
He tells the parents, get her for me. I want her to, to marry me. And it's an extreme case because she's illicit. He shouldn't marry this woman. She's not part of the, uh, she's not kosher. She's not, not allowed. And he says, I don't care. She looks good to me. Get, get her for a wife. We all have choices in this. It's always a choice. And every time we struggle in marriage, we can say a couple of things. We can say, I either honestly, objectively, I saw this coming because I knew what I was dealing with and I thought it would change, but it didn't. Or I could say, I had no idea, I'm completely blindsided, and I have to deal. But in all cases, you can also say that you chose to be married to this person. And so you're, you, you were willing to take what came with that commitment. And I have lots to say about marriage, obviously, from the Scriptures. Isn't it interesting that when Paul teaches marriage and the spiritual life in Ephesians 5, he doesn't talk about the dynamics of the interplay between the two persons. He talks about wives, your job is this. Husbands, your job is this. And you can look it up in Matthew, or Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, what wives are responsible for in Christian marriage under the Spirit. And in verses um, 25 through uh, 33, what husbands are responsible for. Um, in their spiritual life in marriage. And he breaks down individual volitional responsibility in marriage. He doesn't say, wise, if your husband's a good man and he loves you as he's supposed to under the Lord, then you submit to him. It doesn't say that. It just says, wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. You've got your job. He's got his job. Judgment seat of Christ is coming and he's not going to stand you up together in front of the judgment seat of Christ and say, here's what I thought about your marriage. He's going to say, you, wife, here's what I think about how you trusted me and obeyed me through this marriage. And you, husband, this is what kind of husband I evaluate you to have been. Because it really does come down in every institution to individual responsibility. Same with ch children, parents and children. Same with civil government. And this is an interesting thing. Let me just hang out here for a second. Civil government is the divine institution, first established in Genesis 9-6, where God gives man the authority to, to take man's life. And if you've got that authority established, then by a fortiori, for stronger reason, we have all the other things. There's a government that is beyond just taking life. That is something less than that is what I'm trying to say. Now, in civil government, what do you see in government? What do we see in government? Do we see individuals making their choices because they're convicted of what God expects and they're worshiping God in those choices? Is that what we see with kings? Is that what we see with prime ministers? Is that what we see with, uh, with legislators? Is that what we see with judges? I believe with all my heart that in the time in which we live, in the government in which we live, you can see this most clearly when judges, like in our Supreme Court, render their choice in kind of a dictatorial frame, and they say, this is the right way to read this law. And it determines everything. Notice that in our broken culture, in our postmodern world, in our, uh, our arcane system of government, we can't get legislation anymore. Have you noticed this? They cannot write actual bills that are clear you know, enactments. They have to weave everything together into a 4,000-page omnibus that if I don't get what I want and you don't get what you want, then nobody gets anything. So we all get all the things that we want, even though for me to vote for this, yes, and get what I think is right, I've got to vote also for you to do all these wicked and evil and nasty things with tax money. 
But I've got to choose for that because I've got to get the other thing. We've got to pay for, for the military. And to pay for the military, we've got to do gay wedding training or whatever for the, for the chaplains or something. And so, so it's all woven together. We can't get actual legislation anymore. We can't do anything. The only legislation that's happening on clear decisions of yes and no is from the Supreme Court, from the bench, which is not the design. That's not what we wanted. But what I'm saying is, if you take it down to the individual level, we have a system that isn't really working for individuals to make conscious decisions. That's what we just saw with the, with the, <laughs> the catastrophe in the House. Was it 15 votes to get a speaker? Um, and uh, what, what, these, these holdouts are saying no. for and, and I've heard all kinds of commentary and analysis of the holdout, you know, the 20 congressmen and women holding out on, on voting for the, the swamp creature and, um, and why you know, they wouldn't and, and all that. I've heard lots of arguments and I've heard pros and cons, but the point is that you want to go to Washington and be a person of conscience and integrity and say, I will say no to evil and yes to righteousness. You're going to almost always have to say no to everything. Because anything righteous is going to carry a ton of evil with it the way, they've, um, the way our system's ground, ground to a halt. I mean, we're, it's, it was a great experiment, but we can't, we can't govern anymore. And, and this is what I mean. If I can't, as an individual in the collective government, make a decision that is for my conscience, we always vote I'm, every election. Every election, I'll, I'll, I'll just testify. Every election that I voted in as an adult has been against the person in the two-party system. It's been against the person that was running, uh, running as opposed to for someone. I've always voted against. Okay? I'm, I was born in 76. It was a special year. They made a special quarter. Um, <laughs> the 200th anniversary of our country. Uh, um, so I'm young, and I haven't been in, voted in that many elections. I was present. Um, with my parents in 80 for the, for the 1980 and 84 election. I got to stand in line and uh, watch my parents vote and, you know, kind of dance a jig. And I think they voted for someone. But in my lifetime as an adult, generally, um, I've never heard anyone talk about responsibility uh, for, of nation state except for, the, except for the, the reality TV guy. And reality TV isn't. But we are a nation, and God did ordain nations, and that's your job, executive. You're supposed to guard the nation internally, ex- uh, especially from external threat. And uh, at least somebody can talk about that, and no one's ever talked about that. It's always this globalism. So I'm always voting against the, the person I think will be worse for the global slide, and that's just my experience, because we don't have this capacity to know from Revelation what is the right choice. And so as a culture, it's done. And that's why you're in the quagmire that you're in. By the way, the answer to all of this is the Lord Jesus. He will rule in perfect righteousness as a perfect, absolute dictator in an administrative government called a kingdom, not a republic. And in that kingdom, we have a role as administrative agents. You have the nation state, which is not quite the same as government, but is the collection of people established. Again, I'm going biblical order, nation state in um, Genesis chapter 11 with the breakdown into, na- into cultures and languages. And then you have the local church. The local church I put a box around because this is an institution of God. It is a delegated authority structure from God that involves individuals in a collective work, but the local church is only uh, composed of those who are part of the universal church, believers in Christ. 
And if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, then we expect you to become part of this local church at some point when God opens uh, you to understand the clear gospel that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. But the local church is an organization of believers. It's not supposed to be a mixed multitude. It's supposed to have the family as believers. That's the household. And those who are not believers, we want you to join our household. And more importantly, we want you to join the royal family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The, the big insight about this uh, volition piece and all these derivative institutions is that you have a, a plus and a minus. You can say yes or you can say no. Some of your decisions need to be no and some of your decisions need to be yes. But when God says, this is what I want, it's a yes. We need to hardwire that down and say, God, you have your way. This is what Jesus teaches us. For example, in Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, and let your will be done, uh, nevertheless, not as I will, let your will be done about, the, about the, this cup. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me, he prays. So this is, um, this is the way we're supposed to approach God as we want what he wants. And when I don't want what God wants, I need to talk to him. I'm in a, a wrong place. I, I need him to help me get out of this quagmire, this, I've said that twice now, this, um, this confusion that I've got about what I feel like as being more important than what God wants. And when I have that, by the way, when you are there, you're in Philippians 3, your God is your stomach. What you feel like is more important than what God wants for you. And you're, you're mislocated your desires as a primary. So to be married, I have to exercise volition as an individual. A marriage is two volitions functioning together. Family is two plus two or three or more volitions working together in the same collective. Civil government, the collection of volitions working, nation, state, and even the local church. The volition is always, of the individuals, always the determinant of how this goes. And it's been said this way, as goes the believer, so goes the institution. As goes the believer, so goes the institution. As goes your individual choice with respect to your marriage, the way you deal with your kids, the, the, that's how the organization goes. So let me give you an example. Bad marriage. Bad marriage. A husband that loves his wife, a wife won't submit to her husband. Bad marriage. Horrible, horrible marriage. And he feels unrequited. It's not, uh, you know, it's very difficult because the, the perks and the benefits that should come for him in the marriage aren't there, but he is selflessly invested in God's best for her. He's loving her self-sacrificially as Christ loved the church. He's doing his job. Bad marriage, good husband. Bad marriage, good husband. It happens. Stop raising your hands. Bad marriage, good husband. But the other side of the coin, a wife that submits to her husband, a, a First Peter 3, 1 through 6 wife, with a husband who doesn't, doesn't love her as Christ loved the church. He's a selfish fool. He's, he's, a, he's a homer, Simpson. He's a moron. Uh, he's the world according to Jim. He's just, he's just the typical loser that's being portrayed as the, as the man. He's in his cave being a man, sitting around, watching something, eating potato chips and scratching, whatever. He is uh, your loser uh, American husband. Now, she is submitting to God. She's loving uh, God in obedience to his expectations. She's walking by the Spirit and submitting to her husband. And he is clueless and, and a loser. And, and uh, the worst thing we could say about him is he's passive. Okay, horrible marriage. She's on her knees to God. How long, O oh Lord? And he is like, whatever. Is the game on? No? Okay. When's the game on? And, and that's a horrible marriage. But 
she is going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. Good wife, you did, a, you did it right. You had a hard lift. And God has challenges for us in our lives in various ways. Some of you will be te- tested to trust God and walk with Him through your marriage. But in every case, it's volition. And I just want you to see it really simplifies things so much. As we close, if you turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, and this is where we'll pick up next time. 1 Kings chapter 3, well, we hadn't gone there in a while, so where would I, how would I get to 1 Kings? Well, if you turn your Bibles to 2 Kings, that's easy. You go back one, that's 1 Kings. Um, but 1 Kings is about right here in my Bible, which means that it's pretty early in the Old Testament. I've gone Genesis through Deuteronomy, the books of the law, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then we are to First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So this is the history of the, the kingdom, um, of God's mediatorial kingdom of Israel in the land. And we have in First Kings the story of Solomon. Solomon and volition and government. We'll just read the story a little bit, and then we'll close down. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying. Now, I want you to hear what's going on here as we do this setup. David, the greatest king, apparently, in all of Israel's history, until Jesus, David's greater son, comes again to rule on David's throne, as promised in 2 Samuel 7. David is going to give his final words that we have in the Bible to his son Solomon, his final charge before he dies. Now, David has done a lot of this with his son Solomon, apparently, and the only way I know that is I've read the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has Solomon saying things like, when I was in my son's And when I I was in my father's house, he said to me, the wisdom of his father is often on display. If you notice and you're like, who's who's writing Proverbs? Generally, it's Solomon. Who is Solomon's father? It's David. And that's the key to Proverbs. Proverbs is how to rule. Proverbs is not just how to have wisdom. It's how to rule. It's preparatory material for kings to rule under God. That's what wisdom is. It's the capacity to live your life for God's pleasure in his presence. That's what wisdom is. That's the skill of living. And so David is going to give his last wisdom charge to Solomon. Now, assuming you haven't read ahead with my long introduction, what do you think David's going to tell Solomon is his, is his focal point? What is David going to tell Solomon? Here's two words, the Bible. He's going to tell him, you need to hang your hat on the word of God and don't move away from it. That's the summary, because rulership requires revelation from God. And these things go hand in hand. Otherwise, you're going to be abusing your volition, as we'll see. I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Solomon has issued a charge that every father needs to give to his son. Be strong, son, and show yourself a man. The Bible knows of masculinity, not toxic masculinity. That's the fall. But masculinity under God, be a man. He doesn't say be a human, be God's image bearer. He says be a male, masculine bearer of God's image. You be a man. And as John Wayne uh, seems to have said, the man does what he's got to do. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. That's the word of God. To walk in his ways, to keep his statutes. Can, Can someone give me another word for statutes? Okay, how about another word? Okay. Instructions. Judgments. Somebody needs to say the Bible. This is the word of God. In all these cases, we read these things. 
These are, the big picture is these are the word of God that God has given them. That's what the word of God is. That's why you got to be in it. So you know what you're supposed to choose. It, it didn't change just because we came into the age of grace and the church age. It's always going to be true that we live our lives with right decisions based on God's revelation or we're going to be failing. That's the deal. His ordinances, testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Jesus commanded his disciples as they would go build the church to teach them to keep all that he had commanded, to teach those they make disciples of to keep all that he has commanded. And this will be success, that you not only hear it, but do it. So you've got to have God's revelation to make your choices, therefore to do the things that God wants you to do. That's living your life in self-government under God. So that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart, all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." So there is a conditionality in each generation enjoying the promise of the unconditional Davidic covenant. In the unconditional covenants, there are elements of conditionality of enjoying the, the blessings of these covenants. Like Abraham, God tells him, walk before me and be blameless. Had Abraham not left his family and gone to the land God would show him, he wouldn't have received the blessings that God promised him, though the, the, eternally these promises are settled. But in the experience of the generational, you know, in the, in the experience, Experience of these, uh, these patriarchs, and in Solomon's case, you have to walk with him or you're not going to enjoy a son on David's throne as we have it to this right now day. They didn't obey. They lost the throne. But it isn't a permanent loss of the throne because we have a forever king who's coming to sit on David's throne. In Gibeon, wait, wait. Okay, that's verse 4 that David uh, told this to Solomon. So in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Now this is, um, fast forward to uh, Solomon encountering, um, I'm sorry, the, the charge is in 1 Kings 2. I, I think I said 3, that's 1 Kings 2. Then we skip forward to 1 Kings 3, 5, and Solomon has just done this big offering to God as the new king, and the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and we never have anything like that said of David. It never says the Lord appeared to David. I don't know if you know that. But Solomon gets uh, two, perhaps three appearances. He at least gets three conversations directly with God. He appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. And this is the real story that the pagans have come up with, the genie that asks you for three wishes. This is where God comes to a human being and says, ask me anything, I'll give it to you. Remember what I said, government is your volition, plus God's revelation. And you say yes and do what it says. And if you don't have the revelation, then you're going to fail. You're going to make the wrong decision. So what does Solomon ask for? Solomon said, you've shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according to as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. You've reserved for him this great loving kindness that you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. We're always worshiping God on the basis of his prior blessings. And we, we praise him for these things. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David, yet I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you've chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So it's too big a job for me. And all of it is. It's all too big a job. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. 
I want to just be made competent to do the work you've given me. That's the, oh, that's the best thing you could ever ask for. And James 1 tells you to ask God for wisdom and keep asking because he delights in the asking and in the giving. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you've asked this thing, have not asked for yourself long life or riches for yourself or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I've done according to your words. I've given you a wise and discerning heart. There's, no, there's been no, no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I've also given you what you've not asked. <laughs> both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked in, I'll prolong your days. So I'm going to give you wisdom, skill, capacity to do this discernment. And then notice what comes with it. You have to walk in your volition according to my revelation. You have to keep the statutes. You have to do what the word says. That's successful government at every level successful government at every level because if it's true for me and if I, if I don't walk that way, I'm, in, I'm sinful and I'm failing in terms of my self-government, what God's entrusted to me. And you go all the way up to the king of the country and it's the same thing, walk in his statutes. If that's true by mayorism, then it's true for every level. That's how government is designed to function and this is the problem of human government in a biblical worldview. What happened? What happened to Solomon and his volition? Well, if it just wasn't for those pagan wives, there's always an excuse. There's always a reason why, well, we can kind of understand why he kind of went the way he did. Women are powerful and their influence is designed to be powerful. I mean, they're powerful in their influence. And, um, and so, got to make, make idols to Molech. And that's what happened with Solomon who saw God. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, they shall not associate with you for they will surely turn your heart away from after their gods and Solomon held fast to these in love. So, um, hey, there's a big landmine out there and I want you to not step on that. Build a fence around it, don't step on that landmine. <gasps> oh, can I go step on it? That's exactly what's happened here. The one tree, I don't want you to eat from that fruit. The one, th- the one thing, but they're Sidonians, they're beautiful. You idiot. But that's what happened. We have revelation, we have volition, and we have a failure. And so what happens? He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Concubines aren't as powerful. The wives, they're the ones turning his heart away. 700 of them. You're like, those are big numbers. Well, Solomon was very wealthy, and, um, and people are stupid. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. And then he built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus did he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord, shocker, was very angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. 
And they commanded him concerning this thing that he not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, this is the third time. He appeared to him a second time after he built the temple. And now this is the third conversation. Because you've done this, you've not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in the days, your days, for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, for Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Everything starts with divine institution number one, with volition. And it's a clear, clear, easy example. There's so many lessons in, in Solomon and the wives. The influence of womanhood, the power that you're supposed to exert. You're supposed to have powerful influence. You're made that way. We need help. And all of you ladies are like, amen, you do need help. We need help. God made a helpmate. I mean, you can see that power is perverted here and destroys this man and David's house. How? Whatever the avenue Satan uses to attack us, it's always going to be our volition and God's revelation. And that is how you rule. So do, what, do it well. Father, thank you for your grace, for your word, for the time we've enjoyed today to briefly discuss volition and its impacts. Ask for your uh, sanctifying work on us as we pay attention to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.